everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Renaud Laplanche, friend of the podcast and CEO of Upgrade, a neobank that offers affordable and responsible credit to mainstream consumers. Under his leadership, Upgrade has reached a $3.3 billion valuation within four years of launch and is backed by one of the world's top 10 largest banks. Prior to Upgrade, Renaud founded and ran Lending Club for 10 years. He took the company public, reaching a market cap of $10 billion in December 2014. At Lending Club, Renaud pioneered consumer fintech and grew the company to become the largest provider of personal loans in America. In today's episode, Renaud and I discuss his motivation for founding a second company after the success of Lending Club, Upgrade's unique product offerings, including a card that offers Bitcoin rewards, important milestones prior to taking a company public, and more. We end today's session with a rapid-fire round of questions. Hope you enjoy the show. So hello, Renaud, and welcome back to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're so happy to have you here with us. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm great. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, of course. In the last interview, you and Miguel discussed uh, quite a bit about the Lending Club. It was about a year ago and about Upgrade. Uh, but for the listeners that may have missed that episode, could you quickly recap uh, your career and you know anything else major that they may have missed? Yeah, so I uh, founded Lending Club about 15 years ago now. I was uh, the CEO for about 10 years, took the company public. Uh, that was in 2014. We got to about 10 billion uh, market cap. That was the, the highest uh, market cap of any fintech company at the time. And so you can see how much how much progress has been made in the space so far um, since, since then. And then uh, we left, uh, myself and a bunch of other folks from Lending Club left in 2016. And we co-founded Upgrade, uh, which is a uh, neo-bank for mainstream consumers. Fantastic. And maybe we'll start with Lending Club just a little bit. In many ways, it served as a catalyst for the fintech industry and uh, inspired many additional startups. I'm curious if there's any particular story of someone being inspired by Lending Club and having a startup of their own that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, so I think Lending Club had quite a bit of influence. I mean, to, to your point, it was one of the early fintech companies. Uh, the word fintech didn't even exist at the time, or it was it was used in a different context. And uh, I think a lot of the like big fintech companies uh, you see today emerged around around that time, two, three, four years after Lending Club. So like Upstart, I think launched four years after, after Lending Club did, and, and now it's a twenty billion dollar company. I think Affirm launched uh, shortly after, and and Dave and and Max were. I think both sort of influenced by what we did at the time. I think even Square, to some extent, I mean, Square launched around the same time, but Square Capital um, uh, was really sort of, uh, informed by what we tested at the time at Lending Club of the, the sort of marketplace approach to, to funding loans and sort of selling loans immediately to investors, not, not building a big balance sheet, staying capital light. So I think all these uh, sort of design principles were sort of influential to, to Square Capital and, and to, um, to others since, and, and to upgrade, by the way. Many people would have been pretty happy with the success of Lending Club and creating a $10 billion startup, but that was not the case for you. You weren't quite satisfied. What was the motivation behind you know, starting over again with Upgrade? Yeah, so I think there was a little bit of a sense of unfinished business after Lending Club. Uh, I think we we had started something great. Uh, again, so we really put fintech on the map. Really showed that you could build a very large credit business 
really without building a big balance sheet, while staying capital light and, and, and growing fast, and really creates a lot of value for consumers. Right? Lending Club became the, the largest issuer of, of personal loans in America and really managed to take the cost of financing down for consumers and get a lot of consumers out of credit cards and into a more affordable and responsible product than, than credit cards. So I think we're, I was very proud of what we, we achieved uh, there. And I think Lending Club probably remained a sort of monoline business a bit too long. We had sort of a lot of new product ideas that we really didn't get to, um, uh, to put in place. And so all these ideas deserve the chance. And uh, that's what we're doing with, with Upgrade. And with also, a, I think, a, a broader scope, still targeting very mainstream consumers, but offering sort of all kinds of banking services, other, other type of credit, including credit cards, the Upgrade card. So, uh, so I think we're, we designed Upgrade from the get-go as a multi-product uh, platform which I think is what was missing at Lending Yeah, You've certainly been giving those other products a chance, uh, especially over the last year or so. Could you catch us up a little bit on, on what has been happening with Upgrade over the last year and uh, which new products you've launched? Yeah, so I think the, the big story at Upgrade has been uh, Upgrade Cloud. For sure, it's, it's really our flagship product. Uh, I think the entire company grew very fast, right? We, I mean, the, the pandemic has had a sort of devastating effect on a lot of people and on the economies uh, around the world. But uh, in a way, it's been, uh, it's been a boon to, to a lot of different businesses in e-commerce, obviously, with a lot of stores being closed and uh, a lot of purchases moving online and on, on mobile. I think fintech has seen some sort of similar trends with a lot of bank branches being closed for many months. And a lot of mainstream, more mature consumers who really grew up driving to a branch and, and banking in person, so had no other choice than really moving to, to mobile. So I think Upgrade benefited from that, like many, many others. We're up about 4x from last year. So we did about 100 million in revenue last year. We're on track to do about 400 million this year. But the big part of that growth is really Upgrade Card. So Upgrade Card is a very innovative type of, of credit card. Uh, so I think it, it was already, the product was already out uh, last time I was on the show, but it was still small uh, at the time. And it grew uh, much bigger uh, over the last sort of, nine to 12 months and really sort of, uh, met a, a pretty, uh, pretty obvious market need. I think credit cards are certainly convenient and, and, and flexible and they, they provide credit on demand when, when you need it. And that's, that's a useful service. But they also come with very high cost. Right? The average rate on credit cards is about 17%. With a lot of fees, make that total cost consumers well in the, in the 20s. And, and I think probably the, the worst feature about credit cards is the, what we call the monthly minimum payment, which essentially encourages consumers to stay in debt forever and, and not really take care of that, of that balance. And if you pay that monthly minimum payment, uh, you're going to pay the interest, uh, but very tiny portion of the principal, and it's going to take you 20 or 25 years to pay off the balance, and you'll end up paying three times what you initially charged on, on the card. So these are very sort of tricky uh, economics and, and product for consumers. 
Um, and so we wanted to create a product that was really consumer friendly, that helped consumers uh, get to a better place, upgrade their credit, upgrade their, their life, and access credit when they need it, but really turn that credit into an installment plan at a fixed rate with fixed monthly payment uh, that you can pay off over six months, one year, two years, three years. So you choose how, how quickly you pay it off, but you need to pay off principal and interest every month. So, uh, so Upgrade Card comes with that uh, sort of forced discipline that really a lot of consumers appreciate uh, because they, they understand the, the traps of, of credit cards. Uh, they understand credit cards are bad for you. And it's, it's really important to uh, uh, sort of choose the right product and not get into that sort of revolving and, and less revolving uh, credit card debt cycle. So, so the upgrade card uh, has become now one of the sort of largest, fastest growing, and one of the largest sort of credit cards uh, in in the country uh, in just in just a couple of years. So I think we're very proud of what we've accomplished here. That's one of the things I love about upgrade is you really do try to keep the consumer's financial well-being uh, top of mind. That's great to see. It's really in stark contrast with like traditional credit card issuers, right? I mean the, the interest of the issuer and the interest of the consumers are misaligned. Uh, if you're a card issuer, you, you want that balance to stay high. You want to earn that interest income every month. If you're a consumer, you want to save on the cost of that, of that debt and then pay it, pay it back as soon as you can. So we, we really took the, the side of the consumer. It might not be the most profitable right away, uh, but we believe uh, we're doing the right thing and, and our customers will all the time. Along those same lines, I know you launched the debit card, I believe that was in January of this year. And I saw that the debit card has a 2% cash back feature, uh, which is pretty rare for debit cards. Uh, curious how you were able to make that possible. Yeah, so we, we felt that there wasn't a great offering for, again, mainstream consumers, right? Our customers aren't particularly they're not underbanked, right? they're, not, they're not younger, they don't have lower income. Our customers are in their late 30s, early 40s on average, which is the, the US population average. And obviously we have very young customers and, and more mature customers, but the, the average is about the same as the US population. And um, they have $100,000 of individual income. So they're not living paycheck to paycheck. They're not going to be swayed by the type of early paycheck advance type of features that you see at a lot of the other neobanks. What they want is just getting more value from their banking relationship. They, they currently bank with CD, Wells, or, or B of A, and they're not getting a lot of value and they're not getting a great experience. And, and we can really change that. And so value, in that case, when you, when you have a debit card and a bank account, it's one paying no fees, including sort of no ATM fee or ATM fee reimbursement, like, like we do at Upgrade, and two getting rewarding, getting rewarded for uh, for spend, and uh, so we have a two percent cashback rewards on everyday expenses and, and monthly subscriptions, and and one percent on, on everything else. And, and the way we can we can afford to to do that and, and put more money into our customers' pockets. Is really one by operating at a, at a low cost, um, and two by sort of designing that mobile banking account not as a profit center, but really as a way to help our customers uh, and uh, make our customers more loyal to the upgrade brand, uh, welcome more customers into the upgrade ecosystem, 
And we hope that as we start banking with us, they'll, at some point they'll also get a, an upgrade card, which is a credit card, like an upgrade loan. They might get one of the other products we are currently developing. So we, the, the, the bank account really isn't designed as a way to, to make profit. So we're essentially earning about 1.5% interchange, debit interchange for merchants, and we're passing that along uh, to, uh, to our customers. Amazing. And another very cool rewards feature you have is the option for Bitcoin rewards on the upgrade card instead of cash rewards. Can you talk about launching this, this product, how you came to decide that this is something uh, worth having? Yeah, so same idea. It's really about uh, designing products for the customer uh, segments we, we, are, we are serving. And for that mainstream consumer, they're not necessarily early adopters, right? They, they, a lot of our customers don't have a crypto wallet. They, they, they hear about Bitcoin uh, all the time, uh, but they, they haven't necessarily uh, taken steps to sort of invest in Bitcoin. They're sometimes a bit reluctant. It's a risky uh, investment. It's a very volatile investment. So they, they see people talking about the value of Bitcoin going up, but you know, they're missing out a little bit and, and not very comfortable sort of investing. They thought, okay, what, what could we do uh, to change that? And we thought, okay, if we, if we set it up as a rewards program where our customers don't actually have to buy Bitcoin, but they, they're getting it for free uh, in a way when they use a card, then that would sort of kill two birds with one stone. We would uh, sort of encourage our customers to use the upgrade card as their primary card, uh, but also sort of reward them in a way that, that could be more rewarding than the sort of, uh, nominal 1.5% they're getting at the time uh, at the time they're earning the rewards. And, and if there's an appreciation in the price of Bitcoin, then they'll, they'll benefit from it. And at the minimum, there, there, it would be an opportunity to learn about cryptocurrencies and, and get their, their feet wet uh, in a sort of no-risk uh, fashion. It's a very timely topic because the, at the day of this recording, uh, China has blocked all uh, crypto trading. So prices have gone down a bit. Uh, curious what legal hurdles you face in getting this, this product out to market or continue to face? Yeah, so um, I mean, we're not a... Not a crypto business, right? So we didn't necessarily want to sort of set up the entire infrastructure. So we partnered in this case with a company, uh, with a New York based crypto company called Nidig. And so they is a licensed entity. They provide all the, all the infrastructure and they, they, they're the ones sort of handling trades. When our customers earn a Bitcoin, they can either hold on to it and, and keep it uh, and hope it appreciates or sell it. In that case, the, uh, the trade, uh, the sale goes through, uh, through Nidig. They're also the custodian of, of, the, um, of the Bitcoin for us. And changing topics a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about the boom in buy now, pay later companies, uh, BNPL companies and purchases. Uh, and if you view at up Upgrade, view this as a complement or a substitute to your offering. Yeah, we, we think it, it's very complementary. I think we are both sort of surfing the same wave in a way. Uh, same undercurrent. I think we have, uh, a lot of consumers have now come to realize that credit cards are bad for you, right? And there's this like one trillion dollar of, of revolving credit card that it's eight thousand dollar on average for every family in America. It's a, it's a big issue and it carries interest at seventeen percent. We're all trying to do something about it. So I think BNPL and, and the upgrade card really do the same thing, right? They, they sort of turn large purchases into a series of installment payments and make it more affordable that way. 
I think BNPL is typically used for smaller purchases, right? You buy a pair of jeans, you want to pay that in four installments over a couple of months. While the upgrade card typically is of larger expenses where you need like true credit, right? like six, 12 months, 24 months. And so we each have a really sort of core application, BNPL being smaller purchases, shorter maturity, upgrade card being more of what you would typically use a credit card for, uh, but with a lower cost and, and more sort of responsible payment schedule that, that really sort of comes with that false discipline of paying principal and, and interest every, every month. Uh, but I think both types of products are more responsible and lower cost than traditional credit cards, uh, which is great for, for consumers. What, what I like a bit more about the upgrade card is that it's a sort of universal application where it can be used at any, any store, millions of merchants that accept the Visa card, while BNPL is, is getting more mainstream, but it's still confined to, um, to specific merchants. So throughout your time at both Upgrade and Lending Club, you've worked with a number of top VCs, uh, including Union Square Ventures, Ribbit Capital, uh, Coke Disruptive Tech. I wonder what you look for in a VC when you're going to partner with them, when, what you hope for them to bring to the table. Yeah, and I think what you look for varies with different, at different stages of building a company. I think what, what early stage VCs provide is different from, from later stage growth uh, capital type of, of investors. I think in the early stages, you probably want access to, to their network. I mean, they, one of the key uh, steps of building a company is hiring top talent because the team you're going to hire in the first year, 18 months, they're not only going to design the first version of the product and, and get it to market, and that's obviously critical, they'll do something even more important, which is hiring the next level down and the next so 50 or 100 people who are then going to hire the next 500 or 1,000 people. So it cascades uh, down from there. And, and so the, the impact of that early team is, is absolutely critical in, uh, in building a successful company. And I think sort of early stage VCs are really good at, at that. I mean, they're very plugged in, good network. A lot of them have actually a sort of, uh, central uh, sort of recruiting function uh, that they can help their, their portfolio companies with. So I think that, that that's really a key, key part of the, the value. As you go towards a later stage, I think the hiring is more impactful or you have enough of a brand that you can probably find your own, your own people. And then so I think the value becomes more about access to capital, relationships. I think at both stages, so being able to make introductions to, to potential partners can be key, obviously. The later stage, it becomes more with banks or investment banks and early stages, more about commercial partnerships. But yeah, I think they, I see VCs mostly as sort of connectors, right? We can connect you to, to top talent, we can connect you to partners, to uh, capital partners uh, as well, to help you raise the next round uh, by bringing some of our co-investors. So I think all, all that is, is super, super helpful. I think that what I also noticed and, and appreciate from the, the good VCs is uh, also the ability to so not get in the way, right? Because, I mean, you, you want to help, but, uh, I mean, it's almost like a, you're a doctor, right? You first do no harm. And uh, so by, by sort of, uh, being sort of overly um, 
uh, trying to be overly helpful and add value, uh, you might end up detracting value. So I think what, what I've noticed is great VCs are sort of there when you need them, uh, but they're not sort of overbearing and they don't they don't try to um, sort of demonstrate their, their added value at every opportunity. So I think it's um, it's it's also a, a key difference between I think a, a good uh, VC and a, and a great one. I assume it was a lot easier to attract those great VCs uh, the second time around uh, when working with Upgrade than it was with Lending Club, uh, particularly because Lending Club was such a pioneer in the space. Is that a fair assumption or were there any unexpected surprises this time? No, for sure. I mean, everything, in general, everything is easier <laughs> the second time around, whether it's attracting top talent or, or capital or anything else, or even like designing product. I mean, when you know the market, you have a good sense of what's working, what's not working, partnering with uh, choosing key partners. Obviously, you have a lot of history and experience doing that. So all, all, all that is super helpful the second time around. And also, I mean, the fintech industry is now an industry, right? You can actually find people who have 10 years of fintech experience, which just did not exist when we, when we set up Lending Club. And you can find VCs that have been sort of helping entrepreneurs build great fintech companies for 10 to 15 years and really have sort of knowledge and, and experience in the space. I think the, the space in general has really come a long way and, and made it, uh, the space is much bigger. There's been a lot of capital flowing in, into the space. We have a lot of great exits and a lot of great success stories that's been fueling more interest from investors. So I think in general, it's a lot easier to build a, a fintech company now than it was 10 years ago. Uh, but certainly it was also more easier for, for us just because of our sort of personal connections and, and experience. I think uniquely qualified to answer this next question. I saw that you mentioned you hope to take upgrade public in about 18 months. I think you mentioned that in August, uh, so just a couple of months ago. I'm curious when you know, how you know if it's the right time for a company to go public and what kinds of milestones you have in mind for Upgrade or, or any startup to hit um, before it gets to that point. Yeah. First, uh, just uh, to avoid confusion, I, I think I said um, we hope to be ready in 18 months, uh, not necessarily uh, pull the trigger in 18 months. So, um, yeah, I think, I mean, you. Obviously, you can't control sort of market conditions and, and what the investor appetite will be at, at that time. So I think we want to yeah, get ready, get ready to go, and then we will decide what the right timing is based on conditions at the time. So I think there are several really sort of angles or several dimensions of being ready. I think being ready to go public is a lot easier than being ready to operate successfully as a public company. And a lot of, of people focus more on the IPO itself and not so much on what's after. <laughs> the, the IPO is a bit like, like the wedding reception, right? It's, uh, it's a fun part, but then there's, after that, there's a marriage, uh, which can be fun too, but takes work. And so I think to really operate as a, as a successful company, I mean, there's, I think there's an element of size and, and profitability that, that, that's quite obvious. There's like, a lot of the functions of the companies have to be probably more mature than what you expect from a private company, especially in a regulated industry like, like fintech and, and banking. So the sort of compliance, um, legal, regulatory, 
uh, all, all the control uh, functions really need some, some level of, of staffing and, and, and maturity to really to be able to successfully operate as a public company with all these attention that, that you get from regulators and, and consumers and, and investors. And then I think there's a revenue mix question, I think, for us. What we noticed at Lending Club was based of the personal loan business was really good, so growing fast, uh, profitable. But with personal loans, it's mostly a one-time uh, revenue type of, of product where you get a lot of revenue up front, uh, which means like you need to go acquire new customers every quarter, you need to earn that revenue every quarter, uh, which doesn't make investors as comfortable as they would get in a more sort of recurring revenue situation. So I think we're lucky at Upgrade to have the Upgrade card that generates a lot of very sort of predictable revenue. Once customers have the card in their hands, they, they keep on using it and in a way that's, that's very predictable. And we know, we know they're going to be spending $250 or $300 per month, and it's going to get us $20 per month in, in revenue per user. At that point, it's it's almost like a SaaS business, right? You you know what each user uh, is going to do and generate over the next um, so two to three years, and that brings a lot of revenue predictability and and so gives you the ability to plan a lot better. That also increases the lifetime value of customer, which means you can spend more on, on acquisition if, if you want to. So so I think there's a lot of benefits in uh, sort of having that recurring revenue stream which sort of investors typically would give you a, a much higher multiple on, on that revenue. Are you ever tempted to keep uh, a company private for you know longer than you initially planned just to kind of avoid the public market pressure to show numbers you know quarterly? Or is that not really a concern for you? Yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's a major concern. I think, again, in hindsight, we probably took Lending Club probably too soon. At the time, the company wasn't really ready on, on a lot of these dimensions, where it was control uh, functions or, or revenue mix. I think if you go if you go public at the right time and you have your, your, your ducks in a row at the time, I mean, you, you can choose to manage the company one quarter at a time. It's, it's usually the wrong answer, right? You, you want to just plan for the long run and, and along the way, you're going to get mostly good quarters and from time to time you'll have a bad quarter and, and, that's, and that's okay. And every, every public company goes through that. But I think, it's, yeah, it's important to have that discipline of essentially managing the public company as if you were almost as if you were private uh, from the standpoint of optimizing for the long run. Zooming out a little bit, um, looking at the fintech industry overall, any trends that you're particularly excited about for the next, say, three to five years? Yeah, plenty. Yeah, no, I, I think it's an amazing time to um, to be in fintech. We were seeing so many customers embracing fintech now. Again, just just a few years ago, I mean, just pre-pandemic, fintech was mostly a sort of early adopter or underbanked type of play. Now, we, with so many more mature, more mainstream consumers having discovered fintech during the pandemic. And not going back to a branch because they've discovered they don't they don't really need to uh, they don't really need that that physical interaction. I think there are like so many new opportunities in terms of like different products that can get uh, put together, whether it's in crypto or in, or in fiat uh, currency, whether it's credit or other parts of, of banking and, and savings and investment. There are a lot of ways that products can be reconfigured outside of uh, the shackle of a, of a bank. So I'm, I'm very excited about uh, the, the product innovation 
we're going to continue to see and I think that's going to accelerate for the next three to five years. Amazing. I think that's a good time to shift gears into the rapid fire round of the conversation. We'd like to get answers here in about 10 seconds or less. Uh, anything else you wanted to touch on or are you ready to go? No, good to go. Great. Let's do it. Uh, what is your favorite book? Oh, um, that's the uh, three-body problem. It's a um, uh, science fiction book by Chinese author Sixin uh, Liu, and it's it's a uh, it's like a trilogy. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. It's a story of a upcoming uh, alien invasion on planet Earth. Uh, it's riveting. What did you think about the second and third installments of the series? I loved the first one, but I had I didn't like the second and third quite as quite as much. I'm with you, but it's funny. I think the the like different chapters of the book have like different pace to them. At some point, like the second book, I was starting to lose interest, and then it got amazing again. So uh, yeah, it, it, I think it, it rewards your your patience. If you like keep reading, and it, it gets uh, it gets good again. Yeah, got it. What is your favorite drink? Oh, um, I'm very boring. I, I don't I don't actually drink alcohol. So uh, sparkling water is my favorite drink. Water is life. Plenty of non-alcoholic options to go with. Um, what time of day are you most productive? Early morning, for sure. Brain is uh, fresh out of sleep and, and you don't get as, as many distractions. Ideally, you start, start going when everybody else is sleeping or, or busy with, with something else. And then you have one or two hours of uninterrupted work, by, by far the most productive. What subject were you worst at in school? Um, music. <laughs> What was the best piece of advice you were given on the job? Focus on what you can control and uh, don't let the rest uh, get to you. Good advice for work and good advice for life. Yes. Uh, but on a similar note and final question, you can take a little bit longer if you'd like. Uh, what advice would you give your younger self? Um, you know, start earlier. I founded my first company when I was about 30. In hindsight, I would have loved to do it at 24 and uh, sort of get to like make make all the mistakes I've made with the first companies uh, earlier and, and uh, get to where I am now, so six years younger. Uh, it would have given me more, more time to uh, to build uh, some really amazing companies and amazing products that, that people love. So uh, I think if you have that entrepreneurship spirit, it's probably no no great reason to, to spend five or six years in a cushy corporate job and you can just get going and have fun. And I see your uh, lovely dog back on the screen. So I think that's my indication that it's time for a walk. Yes. Uh, but Renato, it was really great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for rejoining us on the podcast. Uh, obviously, consider you a friend of the podcast and, and great talking with you. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.